This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 40, a profile of Cleopatra. location is Egypt and it is very early in the 60s BCE. The pharaoh of Egypt at the time was a man called Ptolemy XII. He was one of a long line of rulers of Egypt whose lineage could be traced back to the beginning of the Ptolemaic dynasty which was established in the direct aftermath of the death of Alexander the Great in the year way back in 323 BCE. The Ptolemaic rulers were originally of Macedonian origin and although they ruled over Egypt exclusively, they would have been regarded by the average Egyptian as a foreign royal family. But foreign rule in Egypt was not an unusual thing during the first millennium BCE. At this point in history, it would be fair to say that the Ptolemaic royal family was not a strong ruling family as there was a lot of distrust among the members and this would inevitably have an impact on the quality of the governance of the country itself. Suffice to say that the Roman Empire was casting a shadow on the entire Mediterranean international situation and Egypt was very much having to dance to the Roman tune as Egypt could not compete at Rome's level. The one thing that Egypt always had was a comparatively prosperous economy as it was a very fertile and fruitful nation but also it made it an attractive prospect to foreign invaders not least of all the Romans. Details about the Egyptians at this point are a little bit sketchy due to information being conveyed by Roman or Greek scribes. So while we know that Cleopatra, the subject of this week's episode, was the daughter of Pharaoh Ptolemy XII, we are not totally sure who her mother was. This might seem amazing to think that somebody as famous as Cleopatra would have a question mark over who her mother could be, but that is because most of what we know about Cleopatra relates to what was written about her by European scribes. So the image we have of her is from a foreign perspective, and this kind of propagandist writing that we see so often in history, in some cases, has led to her being portrayed as a honey-trapping, sexually enticing temptress. I do not believe that this is the real Cleopatra, and I will come back to this point later. We know that Cleopatra had an older sister called Berenike, and we know that Berenike's mother was also called Cleopatra. We refer to Berenike's mother as Cleopatra V, and she may or may not have been the woman 
we call Cleopatra VI, who is referenced in alternative texts. Veronique's mother, Cleopatra V, may have been our Cleopatra's mother, but we don't know for sure. So you can already see how confusing it is to decipher the truth when there is so much ambiguity thrown up by these alternative texts that we are able to read. Veronique was probably around eight or nine years old when her sister Cleopatra was born. As a young Ptolemaic royal family child, Cleopatra would have spoken Koine Greek, which was a Hellenistic dialect of Greek, but it is also claimed that she was one of the only Ptolemaic royals to have bothered to learn how to speak Egyptian, which is difficult to comprehend when you consider that the Ptolemies were living in and ruling over Egypt for around two and a half centuries. However, the bigger point being that Cleopatra was a bright young female with a good academic brain, capable of learning well from a young age. Ptolemy Twelfth was quite pro-Roman as an Egyptian pharaoh, and this may have been a sensible ploy, but it wasn't necessarily a popular ploy with everybody in Egypt. Ptolemy was very much in the programme of trying to befriend the influential Roman politician called Pompey by sending him gifts and military supplies. It may have been that Ptolemy believed that he was keeping the Romans sweet as it was no secret that another important Roman statesman called Crassus believed that Egypt should be completely annexed into the empire of the Roman Republic. Ptolemy would also have hoped that he'd have the support of Pompey when facing his own adversaries within Egypt. But despite all of the kindness and benefits to Pompey of such a friendship, Pompey had other priorities. When the first triumvirate was formed between Pompey, Crassus and Julius Caesar, Ptolemy would make a sizeable financial donation to Pompey. The Roman Senate would recognise Ptolemy Twelfth as Egypt's true pharaoh. In order to gather such wealth, Ptolemy would need to raise taxes and this would make him unpopular with the people. However, it seems that Roman support meant more to Ptolemy than public opinion. Now if we go right the way back to Volume 2, when we summarised ancient Egypt during Episode 20, we realise that we've actually been here before. This is the time when the people of Egypt began to stand up against Ptolemy Twelfth, not only due to these high taxes, but also because the Romans ran the Ptolemaic king off the Cypriot throne, and Ptolemy Twelfth did nothing. Enough was enough, and the Egyptian people replaced Ptolemy Twelfth with his own daughter, who would rule as Berenike IV. Ptolemy would have to flee Egypt to the safety of the Roman Republic and he would take his younger daughter Cleopatra with him. Ptolemy and Cleopatra would stay in Rome as the guests of Pompey and it is very likely that Cleopatra continued her learning in Rome. Seeing how things worked in the Roman Republic from the inside 
and quite likely being introduced to some of the most influential statesmen of Rome and quite likely even Julius Caesar himself. Cleopatra would have been around 11 years old at the time so these were quite important years for her in her adolescence. She would start to become a grown woman and start to look at things from an adult's perspective. In the meantime, her elder sister Berenike IV was starting to infuriate the Egyptians as well. With her lavish tastes and her refusal to bow down to demands that she marry a co-ruler, the Egyptians may have started to believe that they'd be better off without her. Whether or not this would be a factor when Ptolemy Twelfth decided that he wanted to make a bid to get the Egyptian throne back off of his daughter is not certain, but the Egyptians in general wouldn't have been too thrilled about either monarch. In 55 BCE, when Cleopatra was a young teenager, her father would pay one of Pompey's military commanders handsomely to lead an army into Alexandria so that he could regain the throne from his daughter. The commander's name was Aulus Gabinius and he was successful in restoring Ptolemy XII to the Egyptian throne. Berenike IV was executed and within a few years Ptolemy XII would allow the younger daughter to become his co-ruler as Cleopatra VII. The Pharaoh of Egypt When Ptolemy Twelfth made his daughter Cleopatra VII his co-ruler, he may have known that he was on his way out because it would be the following year, 51 BCE, that he passed away, leaving Cleopatra as a 17-year-old Pharaoh of Egypt and designating her younger brother as her co-ruler as Ptolemy XIII. Ptolemy XIII was just 10 years old at the time, so all eyes fell on Cleopatra to lead the way. Her father Ptolemy XII wasn't the most popular ruler and neither was her sister Berenike IV, but they were now gone and it was time for Cleopatra to create her own story. Egypt was very much under the instruction of the Roman Republic though, and we can see that this disabled the Egyptian pharaohs from making any kind of foreign policy. Just as her father had not been able to defend Egypt's political ally Cyprus from the Romans, so Cleopatra was forced to surrender fugitives hiding in Egypt from the Romans. The Egyptians hated being controlled by Rome and their own pharaoh would make an easy target to blame. Add the fact that there was a drought in 50 BCE and the Egyptians must have felt that the gods did not approve of the new young queen. The Egyptian people believed that the gods were choosing the young Ptolemy XIII to be the true ruler of Egypt over his older sister Cleopatra VII. But Ptolemy XIII was acting with a regent called Pothinus. Many believe that Pothinus was happy to push the buttons to turn public opinion and Ptolemy XIII against Cleopatra. Despite the fact at some point Cleopatra and her brother Ptolemy XIII 
are likely to have been married to each other, as was quite normal in Egyptian royal families. Cleopatra was forced to flee Egypt, but she would avoid Rome as her father's Roman ally Pompey had lost control to the invading Julius Caesar, plunging the Roman Republic into a brutal civil war. Cleopatra chose her Levantine allies as her safe haven. Cleopatra's younger sister Arsinoe would ascend to become the co-ruler of Egypt alongside Ptolemy XIII as Arsinoe IV. With all that Pompey had done for Egypt in the past, it seems logical that he would attempt to escape there when Julius Caesar was getting the upper hand over him during the Civil War. However, if Pompey was looking for safety, then he couldn't have picked a worse place. Pothinus, acting on Ptolemy XIII's behalf, arranged for Pompey to be murdered on his arrival in Egypt in 48 BCE and he was obviously banking on impressing Pompey's rival, Julius Caesar. With Cleopatra's closest Roman ally, Pompey, out of the way, and Pompey's head as a prize for Ptolemy XIII to impress Julius Caesar, and with public opinion against her, there could be absolutely no way back to Egypt for Cleopatra. When Julius Caesar arrived in Egypt, Pothinus expected him to be thrilled to see Pompey's decapitated head being presented to him. In fact, Caesar was horrified to find such a highly regarded Roman statesman murdered at the hands of non-Romans in such a barbaric way. Caesar would move to take control of the royal palace at Alexandria as Rome's representative, the superior nation over Egypt. When Cleopatra found out, she would find a way to meet with Caesar at the palace. Caesar and Cleopatra With Caesar and Cleopatra now seemingly striking up an alliance against Ptolemy XIII, Caesar would arrange for Ptolemy's regent Pothinus to be executed and so it was obvious who Julius Caesar was supporting. Ptolemy had no option but to take the battle to Caesar, and he besieged Alexandria, supported by his sister Arsinoe IV. The siege would go on for many months, but Mithridates of Pergamon would have a political interest in helping the primary Roman statesman in order to protect his own affairs, and so he would assist Caesar in breaking the siege and turning the tables on Ptolemy. Caesar would then follow up by pursuing Ptolemy and his forces back to the Nile River. Ptolemy XIII would meet his end by drowning in the Nile, trying to escape from the great Roman commander. His co-ruler and sister Arsinoe IV was deposed and taken to Rome as a political prisoner and paraded through the city before being sent to the temple of Artemis in Ephesus in the kingdom of Pergamon. There she would remain for the rest of her days.
Another of Cleopatra's younger brothers would become the new co-ruler alongside her and he would be crowned as Ptolemy Fourteenth, and be married to Cleopatra in the Egyptian tradition of royal brother-sister marriages. Caesar, the Roman commander now in his 50s, would go on a celebratory tour of Egypt along the Nile River with Cleopatra, now a young woman in her early 20s and clearly pregnant. As we described back in episode 37 on the life of Julius Caesar, Caesar would head off into the Asiatic lands to repay those leaders who had helped him lift the siege of Alexandria by going to deal with the rebellious Pontic ruler Pharnakis II at the Battle of Zella, which we covered in episode 36. After he left Egypt, Cleopatra would give birth to a baby boy. The boy would have the name Ptolemy Philopata Philometa Caesar, which was significant due to the suffix Caesar, clearly suggesting that his father was indeed Julius Caesar. As such, the Egyptians nicknamed the boy Caesarian, clearly referencing Julius Caesar. We'll refer to this baby boy as the anglicised version of that name, Caesarian. Cleopatra was reportedly in Rome with Julius Caesar when her sister Arsinoe IV was displayed in chains during a victory parade which celebrated Caesar's success in Egypt, as well as other parades to celebrate his victories during the civil war between himself and the Pompeians, which resulted in Caesar becoming the most dominant Roman statesman. Cleopatra was obviously in a great position while Caesar was in such a strong position within the strongest nation. Her throne in Egypt was secure and her co-ruler brother-husband was too young to be effective. Things couldn't have been much better. So when that fateful day came on the Ides of March 44 BCE, when Julius Caesar was murdered by Roman senators at the Roman Senate, Cleopatra must have been hugely concerned by her fate. She was actually in Rome at the time, and she would have been very hopeful that her infant son, the son who she claimed to be the son of Caesar, would be given the opportunity to have his future secured by being named as an heir to Julius Caesar. Caesar's second-in-command, Mark Antony, also had his eyes on this prize. However, Caesar named his nephew Octavian as his heir. The most prominent Roman senator at the time was Cicero, and Cicero did not particularly like Cleopatra. Her position in Rome was now very precarious she decided she'd be safer back home in Egypt. Mark Antony As the pharaoh of Egypt, Cleopatra's decisions in relation to Roman politics would be of great importance. Silence would not be an option. Each and every decision 
would have diplomatic repercussions for her and her son and both their futures. It would appear that her first decision may have been to murder her younger brother and co-ruler, Ptolemy XIV. This would be so that she could promote her son, Caesarian, to be her new co-ruler as Ptolemy XV. So she would be doing everything to secure his future. However, the Nile floods that the Egyptian people had always relied upon for their rich agricultural produce were not good for the following years and despite Cleopatra going to great lengths to portray herself as an incarnation of the Egyptian goddess Isis with her son and co-ruler Ptolemy XV Caesarian portrayed as the Egyptian god Osiris, the Egyptian people were more likely to listen to nature in order to find out if the Egyptian pantheon of gods approved of their current leaders. Her next choice would be crucial. Which Roman faction should she back in order to secure the precarious future for herself, her son and her country? Should she support the murderers of Caesar, the liberators known as Crassus and Brutus who had gained control of the eastern provinces, essentially those geographically closest to Egypt? Or should she support Caesar's successors, Mark Antony and Octavian, who were representing the Roman Republic as members of the Second Triumvirate? Initially it appears that Cassius was able to apprehend some Egyptian military while it was in Asiatic lands and this led to rumours that Cleopatra was in league with the liberators. However, when it came to the fateful Battle of Philippi, which pitted the liberators against the Second Triumvirate, Cleopatra backed the Second Triumvirate and the liberators were extinguished. The defeat of the liberators enabled the members of the Second Triumvirate to establish who controlled what throughout the acquired lands of the Roman Republic. Mark Antony was allowed to take control of the eastern provinces, leading to him approaching Cleopatra in order to see if she was prepared to assist Mark Antony in his ambitions against the Parthian Empire in the east. Cleopatra must have been very excited about this potential opportunity, although she seemed to be initially a bit hesitant about accepting the invitation, possibly not knowing if she could fully trust Mark Antony. Without the support of the mighty Julius Caesar, she needed to make a new political alliance with a prominent Roman statesman, and so Mark Antony's invitation would have been very welcome. Cleopatra and Mark Antony hit it off well. There was great ceremony surrounding their political meeting. Clearly the advantages to both Cleopatra and Mark Antony of an alliance were impossible to ignore. Cleopatra would invite Mark Antony back to Egypt, a place where he may have had good memories, dating back to the time when he helped Aulus Gabinius to reinstate Cleopatra's father Ptolemy XII, to the Egyptian throne many years before. 
Cleopatra would use Mark Antony's influence to ensure that her imprisoned sister, Arsinoe IV, a potential rival to the Egyptian throne, was murdered at the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. And the Nile floods would return in order to alleviate some of the suffering and potentially bring a little bit of faith back to the Egyptian people. Cleopatra would become pregnant again and this time by Mark Antony. What happened between Cleopatra and Mark Antony is heavily romanticised, but we must remember the political advantages of their alliance and how much Egypt benefited from Rome's protection and how much Rome benefited from Egypt's wealth and subservience. When Cleopatra gave birth in 40 BCE, it would be twins. A boy named Alexandra Helios and a girl named Cleopatra Selene, so named after the Egyptian gods of the sun and the moon. Despite everything being seemingly beautiful between Mark Antony and Cleopatra, Mark Antony was still a Roman and at the forefront of Roman politics. For the time being, the second triumvirate was worth preserving and so Mark Antony would go back to Rome and marry Octavian's sister in order to cement the triumvirate alliance. When Mark Antony made Octavia pregnant, we can't be sure how Cleopatra would have felt, but she may have feared for her future and the future of her offspring as any other of Mark Antony's children could become a potential rival to her own offspring. Fortunately for Cleopatra, Mark Antony wasn't getting everything his own way within Rome. Mark Antony still had great ambitions of victories over Rome's rivals in the east and he called on Octavian to provide him with the military assistance to get the job done. Octavian refused and Mark Antony was extremely disappointed. This would prompt him to turn to Cleopatra once again. Cleopatra was in no position to deny Mark Antony the assistance he needed, as she was desperate to protect her and her children's futures. Mark Antony must have been aggrieved at the fact that he had to turn to Cleopatra for help, as he had provided Octavian with the naval resources for him and his commander Agrippa to successfully defeat Sextus Pompeius in Sicily. It may have been at this point that Mark Antony was beginning to understand that Octavian was exercising his ability to keep Mark Antony in his shadow, and Mark Antony would have found this completely unacceptable, believing that he should be the primary statesman of Rome not Octavian. Mark Antony realised that he would never be able to lead Rome while the younger and more influential Octavian was in Rome and in control. Mark Antony decided that he had to acquire more power than Octavian and then also try to undermine him, but this was an extremely dangerous position to take. Cleopatra pledged military support to Mark Antony and so he headed east to Parthia but his actions seem in hindsight to be far too hasty. 
Despite taking one of the largest Roman armies ever seen to Parthia, the Parthians were equal to his onslaught and gave Mark Antony's forces a brutal beating. Antony may have lost as much as a third of his military during the 38 BCE campaign. So Antony decided to regroup and this time he decided to invade Armenia, a land sandwiched between the politics of Rome and Parthia, but also a powerful entity in its own right. Having the Armenians on side was a worthwhile thing for both Rome and Parthia, and so Mark Antony decided to invade Armenia first before taking on the Parthians again. Mark Antony would take some Parthian lands but was unable to press forward due to being stretched and so he had to retreat again. In the meantime, Cleopatra had fallen pregnant by Mark Antony again and she gave birth to a son called Ptolemy Philadelphus. It also appears that Mark Antony had declared himself married to Cleopatra. This would really send the message out about Mark Antony's position within the political affairs of Rome and this period can be hailed as the period where everything changed forever. Mark Antony had illegally married a foreign woman while still being married to Octavian's sister and after his Parthian campaign he ceremonially allocated the future of the Eastern Roman provinces to his children by Cleopatra which would infuriate many Romans back home. Mark Antony decided that he wanted to reform the entire Roman Republic into his own new republic, which would be centred at the great Egyptian capital city of Alexandria. He would envisage a completely new Romano-Egyptian Republic and take the power away from Octavian and away from the city of Rome. After the Second Triumvirate had legally expired, Octavian denounced Mark Antony. The Roman Senate would split up, with those senators wishing to defect to Mark Antony leaving Rome, while the remainder stayed in Rome to support Octavian. Octavian declared that rather than Mark Antony deciding to make a well-calculated decision about a complete reformation of the Roman Republic, that he was actually blinded by his love for Cleopatra and that Cleopatra was manipulating Mark Antony into betraying the Roman Republic and that she was truly Rome's direct enemy and that Rome should declare war on Cleopatra and Egypt. Antony knew this day was coming as he had made some deliberate decisions some years before that totally distanced himself from affiliation with Octavian. Octavian may have always had it in his mind that Mark Antony was out to deny him what his great uncle Julius Caesar had pledged to him personally and that should Mark Antony not accept this scenario then a conflict was inevitable. Mark Antony was gathering together an army and a navy that could potentially invade the Italian peninsula and Rome itself, in what was likely to be an all-out bid to take the Roman Republic away from Octavian by force. 
Octavian himself would be gathering his own military to defend his imperial position as the head statesman of Rome. Mark Antony and Cleopatra would pull their military resources, which would converge in Athens. There, Mark Antony would publicly announce his separation from Octavian's sister, which would cement the marriage between him and Cleopatra as official. The next episode of this story takes us back to last week's podcast on the Battle of Actium. There, we learn that Antony and Cleopatra's forces had become hemmed in at the Abrasian Gulf on the west coast of the Balkan Peninsula by the forces of Octavian and his able commander Agrippa. The result was a complete disaster for Cleopatra. Antony's military forces had been starved into doing battle on Octavian's terms and Cleopatra had to escape the scene with her treasure-laden fleet back to Egypt. Antony ended up in Libya without most of his military forces. Octavian knew that he was in a very strong position and personally headed to Syria while his forces pursued Antony across North Africa. Cleopatra would give the Egyptians the impression that her campaigns had been successful ones, but in reality she knew that the walls were closing in on her. Her Roman ally Mark Antony had lost all his power and influence by now and was little use to her. With Octavian approaching and officially at war with her, she could expect nothing less than the defeat and annexation of Egypt to be the outcome. By now, she had already lost her kingdom, if not by fact, then by inevitability. Cleopatra decided that she should at least try to liaise with Octavian to see if there was any kind of way that she could attract some clemency from Octavian towards her children. But Octavian ignored this request. With Mark Antony's forces defeated and Antony himself reportedly committing suicide to avoid a fate worse than death at the hands of Octavian, we are left wondering exactly what Cleopatra's last days were and what her legacy has become. We know that this is when Cleopatra died and we know that this is when Egypt became a part of the Roman Empire under the rule of Octavian, soon to become Emperor Augustus. Death and Legacy The English 16th and 17th century playwright William Shakespeare famously wrote the story of Antony and Cleopatra, which may have been inspired by a translation of Plutarch's works where he wrote about both Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Shakespeare's portrayal of the lives of Antony and Cleopatra would have been performed on stage as a tragedy in much the same way as tragedies were performed in theatres of both ancient Greek and Roman societies. Shakespeare's version would have inspired much more modern dramatisations including the 1963 American film Cleopatra 
which starred Elizabeth Taylor in the main role. This portrays Cleopatra's death as a suicide by the bite of a venomous snake. Plutarch mentions the snake but does not commit to stating that this categorically is the way that she died. Personally, I wonder if she even committed suicide at all. When you consider all the lengths that Cleopatra went to for the sake of her son Caesarion, such as potentially poisoning her own brother and ordering the murder of her sister to remove potential rivals in future years, it seems strange that she would opt to abandon her son to his fate by killing herself. It seems feasible that she may put up with being publicly paraded by Octavian back in Rome before being incarcerated if she thought it could spare the lives of her children. However, there are reports of her attempting to send Caesarion to the relative safety of Indian lands before she potentially committed suicide, so she may have done it believing that she'd given Caesarion the best chance of survival. I'd also wonder if there wasn't an advantage to Octavian by stating that Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide in order to make their deaths sound like a personal choice, albeit under duress. Should the people of Egypt believe that a foreigner had come and killed their divine monarch, then annexation of Egypt may have been considerably more difficult. Whatever my opinion is, and whatever the facts are, this is definitely the end of Cleopatra's tragic story at the tender age of 39. The year was 30 BCE, and this marked the end of Egyptian independence and the end of the Ptolemaic kingdom. Egypt was now a part of the Roman Empire. Although the death of Cleopatra VII of Egypt is seen as the end of the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt, there was still an active pharaoh who co-ruled alongside her, and this would have been the last remaining pharaoh of Egypt. His name was Ptolemy XV, and he was Cleopatra's son by Julius Caesar, namely Caesarion, aged 17 years old at the time. Plutarch describes that Caesarion was destined to flee to India, but that a message reached him from Octavian after the death of his mother, inviting him to rule Egypt under the guidance of Octavian. Apparently, Caesarion returned and was subsequently strangled to death. Cleopatra's three children by Mark Antony were the twins, Alexandra Ilios and Cleopatra Selene, and their younger brother, Ptolemy Philadelphus. The twins may have been around 10 years old, while the youngest sibling may have been around 6. These three children were taken back to Rome and paraded in chains during a victory ceremony. Some would have marvelled at their ruler's achievement, while others would have pitied those poor defenceless children. Octavian's sister and former wife of Mark Antony, Octavia, is suggested to have helped to raise these children in Rome. The girl 
Cleopatra Cellini would return to Africa, but not to Egypt. She would marry the king of Numidia and Mauritania, called Juba II, very much under the direction of Rome. She was a highly respected consort and the only known line by which the Ptolemaic bloodline of Egypt continued. The fate of her two brothers after this time is completely unknown. That was the story of Cleopatra. So I'd be very interested to hear what you guys think about Cleopatra and what kind of person she was. My feeling was this whole um, vision or image of Cleopatra that we get in the modern age of her dressed in these sexy outfits of being beautiful, slim, perfect hair, you know, beautiful looks and all that kind of thing. I think that that is something that has been, um, that, that's a, a creation, that is an, an image creation. And I think it stems from the fact that Octavian probably wanted to make her out to be a powerful woman over a weak Mark Antony. So Mark Antony couldn't resist her uh, because she was trapping him with his with her looks you know she was being very very sexually forward with him and he couldn't resist and and it suited octavian to portray cleopatra that way so that she could be viewed upon as a villainous character so so her her sexuality and the the way in which she used it against uh, mark antony um, was a villainous act and it suited Octavian to portray her that way and it's and now these days we've seen her as this powerful woman um, who used her beauty in in order to get her own way she was a powerful lady but she was a very intelligent and astute uh, stateswoman for her country and uh, much as she was staring down the barrel with a country that was basically heading down the route of becoming a Roman province. Cleopatra did everything she could to try and avoid that and to try and stay in favour. And I think, she, like, above all else, she had two sisters, Berenike and Arsinoe, who failed and, and where she succeeded. And I think there's a whole lot more to Cleopatra's story than the way that she's portrayed in modern society. But I'd be so interested to hear what you think. If What's your opinion of Cleopatra? What really is the true modern concept of this woman? Please, please, please write in and let me know. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast series, as I'm sure many of you are, um, please do consider donating to the podcast itself it really does help to keep it going and it does help for me to be able to gather the resources together to make it a very comprehensive guide to our history um, you can go to the history of the world podcast.com website click on the patreon link you don't have to make a huge contribution anything from one dollar a month upwards it really does add to the pot and help to keep the podcast going when you do make any kind of contribution to the History of the World podcast, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. 
We do have a new member of the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati, this week, and his name is Jason Kuras. So thank you so much, Jason, for signing up and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Let's uh, try and find some messages that are filtered through on the various forums for the podcast. Um, Richard Campos has... um, has put um, a message on the actual website itself, the History of the World Podcast dot com website, who's, and he's put excellent work, Chris. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Richard. I think he's put that on the uh, story, of the Olmecs, which we did. That was a long time ago. We covered that subject probably almost a year ago now. Um, but fascinating. I can't wait to get back to the Americas and uh, pick up the story there. We've been in Europe uh, for so long now, but it's unignorably uh, important, the whole uh, story of Greece and Rome. So we're, we're really um, stuck, stuck there at the moment and I'm unable to get to the Americas, but certainly I think we'll uh, be covering Mayan um, early societies um, in 2021 sometime. Um, we've got uh, the uh, the newest member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, Jason Kuras, has put, Could primitive farming techniques that exhausted the land, coupled with droughts, contributed greatly to this Bronze Age collapse? So we're talking here about the late Bronze Age collapse, that never-ending question of how it came about. What were the causes of these uh, Bronze Age societies suddenly disappearing or suddenly sort of going um, very, very... Or, you know, some of them disappeared, some of them actually just lost their way completely and, and become a shadow of them for themselves. Um, primitive farming techniques, interesting that. I mean, certainly I've not really stumbled across many instances in history... Um, that have said that primitive primitive farming techniques have hindered uh, the progression of any society. However, I must admit, the fact that I've not stumbled across it in study doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, for sure. Um, certainly, I know sort of salinisation of, of, the, of the land can lead to uh, struggles in agriculture, um, but... Um, who knows? I mean, certainly, I, I my gut feeling is that, is that there was a number of factors and, and maybe small factors that had knock-on effects and created secondary factors. So, so I tend to think it was personally. I think uh, a lot there was a lot to do with natural circumstances. Um, you know, I think a lot of seismic activity in the in the area that caused migrations that had a knock-on effect over the whole region. Um, I think the fact that disrupted trade links was really what um, caused uh, societies to collapse everywhere, really. So um, that's my feeling. Once again, if you've got an opinion, I really, really would love to hear from you. Please don't hesitate to write in and tell me what you think the causes of the late Bronze Age collapse were. Michael Nelson has emailed in, has put, um, Chris, I have just recently come across your podcast and now listen to it every day. I started at the beginning and have listened to about 20 episodes so far. I'm amazed at your ambition. I look forward very much to travelling through time and history. Please keep it up. My ambition is basically fed by um, 
everyone's kindness, I would suggest. So it's uh, really your your um, your encouraging words and emails and warm responses are really what uh, motivates me to keep the project going. I, I love history anyway, so it's an absolute pleasure to write about it. But um, really, when I receive your emails and comments, I, I find it very, very motivating. So, um, so thank you and thank you, Michael Nelson, for taking the time to. Uh, write that message thank you and a, a nice five star review um lemming from oz uh via apple podcasts um unsurprisingly from australia who's written uh, thanks bro five stars chris thanks a lot for a lot of hard work interesting material which gets listened to multiple times and a fabulous rate of speaking i have a peculiar form of deafness and your deliberate pacing in the way that you speak enables me to follow what you are saying you got me hooked when i stumbled on your histories of the ancient world on youtube which are beautifully broad brush to fill in my total ignorance big hi from oz lemming uh, well look thank you very much and it's nice to get that validation there is a definite and, and deliberate aim to make history easy to understand so that that really is um part of the remit for the project so uh very nice to hear that from you lemming and, uh, and i'm pleased that you're able to enjoy the work if you have got a form of deafness that um prevents you from maybe enjoying the full spectrum of podcasts that are available out there now if you've never visited the tapper talk uh discussion forum for the history of the world podcast why not go and have a little look at it. You can access it if you go to the History of the World Podcast.com website and you go to the interact link. Um, it just says it just says interact with the podcast discussion forum. If you click on that link, it will take you through to the History of the World Podcast discussion forum. Um, a few people have got involved over the over the months with this discussion forum, but Eric G. Young who's a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, um, has posed a very interesting question. It basically says Salamis or Actium, which was more significant. Now, I haven't answered this straight away with what my opinion is uh, because I wanted to uh, I wanted to mull it over and, and swish it around in my mouth a bit. But we did cover both of these battles. Uh, the Battle of Actium got its own episode. Um, and um, the Battle of Salamis was covered within the episodes on the second Persian invasion of Greece. So we're going right back there to like episodes 11 and 12. Um, and so the two battles for comparison, I think, is we've got Salamis, where um, a confederation of, of Greek city-states, or polis, as they're otherwise known, um, took on the Persians who were advancing down the Balkan Peninsula. I think they'd taken Athens by that time and were trying to bear down on the Peloponnese, so the Spartans had to get quite heavily involved in that. And um, the outcome was um, significant to the entire outcome of that second Pe uh, Persian invasion of, of Greece. Um, the other one, of course, was Actium, in which um, we uh, we covered that, where Mark Antony and Cleopatra's combined forces were trapped inside the Ambracian Gulf 
um, after attempting to plot to invade the Italian peninsula and, and try and dethrone Octavian. And um, Octavian was equal to it. He, he absolutely was ahead of the game and him and his worthy commander Agrippa uh, were able to besiege the entire um, uh, fleet of Antony and Cleopatra and um, they they basically wore them down into a position of weakness where they were able to defeat them at the battle. So um, which one was more significant? I think which one had the stronger effect on on history? Um, but it's an, it's an extremely interesting question. And we'd obviously, of course, love to hear your opinion. So if you've got an opinion about which battle was, which naval battle was more significant, Salamis or Actium, then please come to the Tapper Talk forum. All you have to do is just sign up and, and you know just get get yourself a username and get stuck in. There's plenty of subjects on there that you can get involved in. So uh, do that today. Come along and join us. Well, I guess it would be sensible to wrap it up for another week. Obviously, the Cleopatra episode, there was such a lot to cover. It, it, it was quite a long one by comparison, but uh, we don't mind. Uh, Cleopatra, absolutely fascinating uh, figure, very, very unique uh, monarch. Um, and um, what a great story it was. It was an absolute pleasure to, um, to investigate her a, a little bit more closely. And um, next week... We'll go back to the Roman story, but we'll actually just have a bit more of an analytical episode next week and and look at the changes within Rome. What was going? What was actually going on behind the scenes when Rome was transitioning, um, particularly from uh, being a republic to an empire? What did that actually mean? What changes were actually happening within Rome? So we're going to have a, a bit more of a closer scrutiny of that. Um, but that's for next week. That will be for next week. So until next time, um, have a great week, everyone. And don't forget to be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us. <laughs>